We're going to start with, uh, it's not completely arbitrary, but uh, we're going to do, we're going to start uh, to set up the morality of, of uh, human act, action. Uh, we're going to um, uh, start with an understanding of freedom. Where did my uh, pen go? Who stole my pen? I got it. It's right here. All right, so, so we need to understand uh, freedom. From whence does freedom come? Uh, then how to evaluate a moral action? Like how do you evaluate it, good or bad, right? And then um, that evaluation will have a lot to do with understanding the moral conscience, what it means to have an informed conscience, a formed conscience, to make a judgment of conscience. What do you do when you're certain? What do you do when you're doubtful? Uh, what's, an, what's an invincible erroneous conscience? What's a vincible erroneous conscience? Um, all of those things, which will get absolutely confusing, I hope. And, uh, and then we'll do some confession talk. Why, how, what, how often. And uh, there's also a little, uh, what, one of the students here has already asked me about indulgences, so I thought I'd maybe touch on that as well. He can remind me if I, if I forget. Um, so, as we're looking at human freedom then, um, the, the thing to, to, rec to remember is, and I'm going to go back to this in classes over and over and over again, so that w if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? The first answer you should give is it means that we have the two powers of the soul, intellect and will. God has intellect and he has will. God can know and God can choose, right? It's the, it's the, uh, the knowing by which we are able to, to, to come to truth, and it's the willing by which we're able to love. So the way that we're the most like God is by our knowing and our loving, okay? Um, so our freedom comes from the ability to know the truth, to also know other people, um, and then our ability to choose, right, comes from our will. But they, they, they kind of move in tandem. You wouldn't say somebody is free if they don't have an intellect, that they're just randomly making choices. That's what, you know, dogs do. Dogs don't have intellect, and they don't have freedom either. They just have, they obey nature, right? Um, and they're not created in the image and likeness of God, right? Uh, do I happen to be a dog person, so I should probably talk about cats when we're talking, <laughs> or skunks, uh, pejoratively. <laughs> So, so the most important, whenever you hear the whole thing about image and likeness, what in the heck does that mean? It means we have things like what God has. Well, God doesn't have a body. So being created in the image and the likeness of God is not to have a body, right? It has to do with the spiritual nature, all right? And we talk about that as the form of the person, which is the soul. Um, but what God has and what the angels have are intellect and will. They can know and they can choose. Now, it, as soon as... And, and why does God give us freedom? Why freedom? 
Go ahead, this is where you can answer. Why would God give us freedom? So we can love him? So God can love everything he creates. He loves dogs, you know. He even loves cats. He might love skunks. But I'm not sure about that. But the reason, the reason he creates us with a higher dignity than animals is so that we can return that which he bestows. So he bestows his love on everything that he creates, but he creates us in a very particular way, and the angels, so that we can return the love that he gives. All right. So he, when, when he creates uh, mankind, he creates beings with particular capacities to be able to be in communion with him to be able to be united with him. Does that make sense? So that's what our freedom is for. Now, if our, our freedom is for loving God, that's the reason he, he gave us the freedom. What was the risk of giving us freedom? Not loving him, rejecting him, and by extension? Lewis, did you say it? Sin, exactly, sin. Not loving God is sin. Um, you know, any kind of uh, action against your neighbor, which is evil, is sin of some level or another. So the great gift that we have of freedom, which makes love possible, also makes evil possible. Or at least evil that would, uh, that would result from an evil or malevolent will, Right? He can't give us the ability to love without giving us the ability to not love. Now, this is a huge debate that's gone on, and uh, uh, it's a debate that a lot of atheists will actually have. They'll say, well, why can't God do that? Well, because if freedom is that which makes loving possible, then it also obviously makes not loving possible. So to take away the ability for somebody not to love. So imagine this with your husband. Um, I like to pick on men because they don't bake. <laughs> um, <laughs> and other reasons. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, women, if you're, you look at your husband and you say, well, I wish he could love me more or better or whatever and then if you could make it happen so if you could if you could uh, do the the magic thing or something like that um, and and make it so that he would love you always the way you want to be loved would it be love it's a rhetorical question obviously but um, it wouldn't be love because it would be coercion you can't have love and coercion at the same time so if God, you know, created uh, beings who he wanted to love him in return, but never gave them the ability to not love him, that the only way they could act would be to love him, it would mean they really didn't have freedom, right? It would mean they were just programmed to do what he wanted them to do, right? Autom, autom oh, why do I use that word? I shouldn't use, robots. Uh, you know, they were just, they'd just be, we'd just be robots, programmed by our designer to do what we want him to do, what he wants us to do. So, the, 
the, the great possibility of freedom is that we use it for, for love and goodness and truth, but it also makes possible uh, that we use it for, for evil, that we use it uh, for sin. And, you know, the, the greatest evils that we see, I mean, the church shooting that just happened on Sunday, you know, we see the, the, the shooting in Vegas. I mean, we see all these, all these evils. And, uh, and, that, and that poses other questions. Why would God even create somebody who does something like that? I mean, if God knows he's going to do it, why would he create somebody? These are, these are questions for another class. But these are questions I want you to think about. I mean, one of, one of my main goals is to get you questioning as much as possible. Because it's only through questioning that we will arrive at truth. It's only through asking questions that we exercise part of what makes us like God. If we just are content to never ask a question and never wonder, then, I mean, that's okay. It's not like the worst thing if, you, if, if a person just wants to be a Catholic and go to church and whatever Father says is absolutely true, it must be, and I'll just listen to everything he says and do it which is great because I'm going to have a talk about tithing coming up. (laughs) You know, but most people aren't wired that way, you know, because we have intellect. And so we may not openly ask questions, but we may think about them. And we may wonder why, you know, throughout the week and all the rest. What I want to do is create a relationship with you as your priest that you feel very comfortable to ask questions and to not be afraid of that. And I'm, I feel pretty secure that I can, I can help you, you know, get to the truth. I mean, it's kind of what I've been doing my whole priesthood. So, okay. So, asking questions, good thing. Now, how do we determine, um, how do we uh, determine object? Now, I'm going to teach you, what, what I normally do is I teach you the, the like, sort of scientific words, and then I teach you the simple words. And you can pick whatever you want to hold on to, all right? But I don't want to shortchange you. And if you are taking notes, the, uh, the section on this um, is... Um, 1750 in the, in the catechism, if you want to follow. So when we're evaluating moral action, what we're doing is, is we're looking at what's called the object of the act, the intention, and then the circumstances. And the, the shortcut to this, okay, is the what, that's a question mark, the what, the why, and the other stuff. <laughs> okay, what did you do? I stole money. Why did you do it? Because I wanted to buy a PS4. That's a video game console. Uh, the circumstances would be who, who did you steal it from? Um, how much money was it? Uh, What were sort of, did you bludgeon somebody as you took the money, you know? uh, You know, did you beat somebody up? Did you uh, embezzle it from the collection plate? 
you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I heard of this one. <laughs> I heard of this one church down in Phoenix that when this pastor got there, I won't say who or what it is, but apparently um, they would take up the collection and then the collection baskets would sit in the back of church. And if anybody needed financial assistance that week, they just go and help themselves. It was like Halloween or something. And uh, the pastor put an end to that pretty quickly. And the collections amazingly went up, you know. Um, all right. So does that make sense now? So for, an, uh, an, uh, for a human act to be good, for it to be good, all three of these have to be good. So if, um, if I took money from my mother's purse, all right, uh, why did you do it? Because... Um, I needed to, to go to the store to buy soap for the family. Some of the circumstances, did she tell you to do it? Yes. Oh, well, that's all good. You know, I took money from my mother's purse. Why did you do it? Because I wanted it uh, for something of, of my own. Uh, how, how much did you take? I took $5. Yeah, okay, well, not good. You shouldn't do that. I took $200. Number one, amazing, she had $200 in her purse, but, <laughs> but it makes it more grave. So generally speaking, the circumstances change the gravity of, the, of, the, of what was done. They make it worse or not as worse, okay? For, a, for an act to be evil, one of these has to be bad. The reason has to be bad. All right, so if it's, if it's just straight up stealing, it's bad. The whole action is bad. But wait a second, I was stealing so that I could pay the, the copay for my children to go to the doctor. It's still stealing. It doesn't matter why, you know. Or a, uh, flip it around to a seemingly good action. Um, well, I, g I gave money to somebody who was who asking for it at, you know, on the on-ramp or the off-ramp, the on-ramp to the freeway down in Phoenix. You did, yeah. Why did you do it? Well, Father John was in the passenger seat and, <laughs> you know, I don't know, I was kind of conflicted. I thought, I thought maybe I should look good. doesn't matter that Father John would never give money to the person on the on-ramp, but you wanted to look good. So it was, it was pride. It was prideful. Right? It was vanity. That's evil. That's bad. So the act is bad. The act is bad itself. Now, there are certain actions which the church says are um, always wrong, regardless of the intention or the circumstances. Those are called intrinsically evil acts. They're intrinsically evil in their object. All right? Um, the, the church has said, uh, 1975, in a document called Persona Humanae, Humana. I think it's Humanae. Anybody, somebody look it up. I don't know if it's the possessive or the not nominative. Anyway, it's Latin, doesn't matter. The point is that the church said that like, for instance, all sexual sins are intrinsically evil in their object. So there's nothing you can do to make them good actions. All right, adultery is always adultery. You can't say, I'm trying to think of an intention that would make that right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard, which is the point. Um, but people will do that, you know, they'll, they'll, and it's not just with, with that particular sin, but there are, 
it's important to note that there, there are other things which may not be sinful, which you might think would be sinful. So, for instance, um, there are basic rights that people have which supersede something like personal property. Okay? For instance, if you have a starving family, all right, and a starving family has truly exhausted their means of finding food, and, you know, somebody from, goes to a market and takes that food, they have a basic right to food, which supersedes. And as long as they've exhausted, I mean, as long as they've done, they've asked, they've begged, they've gone to social services, they've done everything else. If you have a kid that is starving to death, all right, that basic human right is more important than somebody else's right to personal property. That's kind of a, it's an interesting example that, that maybe we don't always think about. Same thing with, obviously, water. Now, that doesn't extend to, to people just doing whatever they want and, you know, reckless lawlessness, as opposed to unreckless lawlessness. Um, it doesn't extend to every situation, but there would be particular situations where that would make sense and it would be understandable. Um, you know, especially you think of areas of the, the world where, you know, the, the countries are just so corrupt, just abject corruption, and people are starving to death. You know, countries where we send aid, we send food, but the regimes that control those countries don't disperse it, don't, don't dispense it, and people are basically, you know, like either you, either you die and keep the, the law of not stealing and your, your baby is going to die, uh, starve to death, or you get what you can. All right, that's the kind of circumstance that I'm talking about. Um, we're not talking about somebody who goes into Safeway who just got, you know, because it's the easiest way to steal, as opposed to, you know, looking into all of the many social services that exist, both uh, governmental as well as private. That would not, that wouldn't qualify because they're not, you know, they're not making use of lawful ways of getting what they need. Does that make sense? Okay, now, one of the things about, I'm going to circle back to a little bit about freedom, because it's important to know this. When, when we talk about the imputability of acts, okay, so to impute moral evil onto somebody. So in other words, uh, they stole money, uh, or they just stole, how guilty are they? How guilty are they for that? You know, just, I mean, so clearly it was, it was thievery, and we're not talking about the, the sustenance kind of issue. We're talking about just straight up thievery. Um, how imputable um, are they for having done that act? And the thing that is important to remember here, and this is incredibly important actually, this has everything to do with moral and venial sin, is that there are mitigating, there are mitigating uh, circumstances. What mitigates somebody's culpability, responsibility for having committed evil, or how guilty they are for having committed evil, what lessens their responsibility has to do with this. This is why it's so important to know this. If they don't know, they're less responsible. Four-year-old going through the checkout line 
and, uh, you know, reaches over and grabs a candy bar and, you know, should you put them in timeout? Should you spank them? I don't know. They're four years old. How much do they really know? You should tell them, you know, you should try to communicate in some sort of way about not taking what isn't theirs, but they're four. It's before the age of reason, which means that this is not really going to be nearly as operative at four as it will be when they're eight, seven or eight. So the lack of knowing changes the responsibility for the evil done. For instance, um, there are people who do not know that it's a mortal sin to miss mass without a legitimate reason. All right. I remember uh, teaching kids about this in grade school, and they were always very surprised, and their parents that night were always very angry because they came to find out that that's what the church teaches, that um, there are reasons, there are reasons, and you can be dispensed from your obligation to attend Mass, all right? There are reasons why it would not be a mortal sin. And those reasons would be have to do with intellect or will. They would have to do with freedom. Either if the person didn't know it was wrong, truly didn't know it was wrong, you can't be guilty of having committed a mortal sin. You have to know it. Practical application in the confessional. You confess something that you know to be grave matter. It's serious enough to be a mortal sin. And then Father John says... Was it a mortal sin? And you say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure. If you didn't know, you have to know it's a mortal sin, right? And knowing has to do with knowing what the church teaches as well as the, uh, the judgment of conscience. I mean, we're going to get there. But, um, or let's say not going to Mass on Sunday. Well, I was going and then, um, you know, my daughter started throwing up and she was sick and I just couldn't make it. Well, that's not a mortal sin. But, you know, I've had all kinds of people come in and confess. I'm not saying here, but over whenever I say somebody has confessed something, do not ever think that I mean I will intentionally block out things that have been confessed here. And remember that I have 18 years of, nearly 18 years of priesthood. So there's thousands of people, all right? And I've been at two parishes where we had confessions every day of the week. So I've heard thousands and thousands of hours of confession. But I've, I've had people come in and confess something like that, you know, like uh, uh, they, uh, they, they were on their way to church and, and they got a flat tire. Father, I got to go to confession. No, you don't. No, you don't. And we know that sort of intuitively, like, well, how could, how could I be going to hell if I don't repent of that? Right. Exactly. How could you? Right. Your freedom prevented you. Um, you know, one of the things the church does ask is, I, I know a lot of people uh, around here, you know, go out camping and stuff. Don't, don't ever invite me. <laughs> I feel like I'm camping already. Uh, so it's not my thing. But, uh, but it's fine, right? But if you're down, if you hike the Supai Trail, which I actually have done twice uh, back in high school, you know, unless you've got a priest along, you're not going to make it to Mass, you know. And so, obviously, you can't go to Mass. What is the church actually at? A lot of people don't know this. I actually didn't know this. I'll just be honest. I didn't know this until into my priesthood. You know, there's a lot, it's a thick book, and not everything is in here. So, 
What the church asks is that if you know ahead of time you're going to be somewhere where there isn't going to be Mass on Sunday, the church wouldn't say never go camping. The church would never say never, you know. What they ask is that you go to your priest and you say, hey, Father, we're going camping. I'm going to miss Mass. Will you dispense me? The church actually, that's what the church asks, is that you, so you go hunting or something, you know, and you're, you're out somewhere and you can't make it to Mass. Um, and the reason for that is... And you might say, well, that's just, what do I need that for? I mean, is God really going to, well, no, he probably won't. You know, I mean, if you don't ask for it, I mean, is God going to send fire and brick? Well, obviously it hasn't happened. Um, you know, is it some heinous sin? No, I don't think so. But it's, what it does is it just kind of reminds the, the person that, hey, I've, I've got, you know, going to Mass is more than just about me and God. It's, it's about me and the community and you know, my relationship to the community, my relationship to God, my relationship to the priest, and, and, you know, to keep myself sort of in check, you know, I'd go to the priest and just say, hey, I can't make it, you know, can you dispense me? And of course, you know, I'm going to say something like, well, you know, I might ask, where are you going to be in the middle of Montana? You're dispensed. <laughs> I once got, <laughs> once got a text from a parishioner, and uh, they were on vacation, and uh, I think it was Saturday night, yeah, Saturday night, and they said, um, you know, we're on vacation, whole family, but we don't really have Sunday clothes for Mass. Can we be dispensed from going to Mass? And I said, no. (laughs) Go to Mass. Go to Mass. Go to Mass. Like, whatever. Wear shorts. I don't care. Go to Mass. You know, unless you don't have clothes at all, go to Mass. <laughs> you know, I don't care if you're going to suffer slight embarrassment. That's, that's pride. That's vanity. Go to Mass. Okay, so you see how it, so the priest is there not to be a jerk, you know, although you might see that as such, but, but that's not my, that's not how I see it. I see it as just the priest helping like, okay, well, conscientiously, how do I act rightly in this, in this situation? Okay, so when you talk about imputability, I just want to read the, the list of things that can lessen a person's guilt. So even if something is, a, is presumably a mortal sin, namely it is grave matter, um, if there are certain things which can mitigate their guilt such that it wouldn't be a mortal sin, these would include ignorance, intellect, inadvertence, will, fear, both intellect and will, habit, mostly will, in order, inordinate attachments, will, and other psychological or social factors. So basically, and this is one of the things that really gets lost with priests, okay, because when priests go and they learn about moral theology, they take like one class in seminary, they don't get the benefit of, you know, all the two years extra that I got just to do moral theology. And so you don't often hear this stuff. What you hear is, that's a mortal sin, go to confession. That's a venial sin, you don't need to go to confession, but you know, maybe you should, or something like that. But you don't hear what the church fully teaches, which is to say that you know, something could be, uh, it could look like a mortal sin, but there could be all sorts of mitigating factors on your intellect and will that, that mean it's not a, uh, a mortal sin. Let me give you another one. This is a sin against the Sixth Commandment. Not yet. No. This is a sin against the Sixth Commandment, which a person would do alone. 
You got to find it. Six. Oh, okay. All right. Nope, nope. Okay, there it is. Okay, and this would apply to other sins as well, all right? To form an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility and, pa and guide pastoral action, one must take into account the affective maturity, force of acquired habit, conditions of anxiety, or other psychological or social factors that can lessen, if not even reduce to a minimum, moral culpability. Meaning that sin might be like certainly venial, if not even less than that, okay? Now, again, this is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's not Father John's opinion. Um, the, the point here is, is just to remember that as you are making, and we're going to get there, as you make a judgment a moral judgment, a judgment of conscience about an action you're going to do or an action you've already done, you need to take into account all of this other stuff about, well, what did I know? You know, where was my, where was my freedom? Where was my will? Was I, you know, were the, how, how involved were the, were the passions in that? Um, was I fearful? Some people are afraid to death to, get, to even go into a church, you know? They're, they're, or, or maybe they had this horrible experience with the priest and, and they just, and there's a lot of those, you know, really, really bad stuff and some, and some, you know, some moderate stuff, but it's hard to go into a church, you know, it's fear, you know, it's duress. Um, other sins are sins of habit that lessens the guilt, okay, even where something may have been mortal might be venial. Now, who had the question? Yes. Okay. Conviction. Does it come, can it come to the soul and the spirit? Conviction. And it's intellectual, you said. Right. But can you have the conviction in your soul? For what? For the sin. Meaning spiritual that you. Conviction. A spiritual conviction that you've committed a sin. Yes. yes. We're, and we're going to get to that okay. with uh, moral conscience. Um, generally, we refer to the Ten Commandments for not honoring the Sabbath. <laughs> and then um, not going to church on Sunday had to do, remember the Jews, if they didn't honor the Sabbath, all right, they were committing a grave sin. And then after the resurrection of Christ, he, he rose on Sunday. So the Sabbath in the Christian understanding became Sunday. And at that point, Sunday needed to be honored. And early on in the early on in the Christian practice, the early Christians would actually go to temple on Saturday and then they would or they would or they would uh, celebrate on Sunday morning. And then in the evening, they would celebrate the communal meal of the Eucharist. OK, and so as the church more formally what happened is you had right away the, the celebration of the Last Supper, okay? It was, it was a, a communal meal of the Last Supper, um, and it would usually happen at the end of a meal. And then as time went on, the church put more liturgical, you know, sort of, it, be, it took on its liturgical form through centuries 
to what it looks like now. But from the very beginning, uh, Catholics were, were honoring the Sabbath as Sunday, as something that they believed was an extension from the Mosaic Law, the number two, three, three, commandment, three. It's three. Yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to be sensitive to the the uh, the crowd, um, but there are particular sins which uh, tend to become habitual, which would not necessarily be the sixth commandment, but there could be habitual lying, there could be habitual um, judgmentalism, habitual gossip that never happens. Um, <laughs> And so the, the habit of it, of just, you know, those sins where you go, oh, I did it again. Why do I keep doing that? That kind of thing, okay? Because what happens is the more you do something, the more it becomes habitual, good or bad. And it's harder to get out of it once you're into it. So in this sense, you look at somebody who, who's an alcoholic or, or even a, a drug addict. And if you're to say, well, gosh, they're, they're totally responsible. Well, no. And once you become an addict, your guilt really, really lessens, all right, which is, which is why the Lord is very clear about not judging and having mercy. Okay, let me move on. So let's, let's get to, uh, so remember about this, the morality of Acts. What did I do? Why did I do it? And then the stuff surround, the other stuff. And, and the, the first two are kind of the most important. What did I do? Was it good or was it bad? I cannot do anything evil so that good may come. That's a, that's a principle of the church. You can't do anything, well, I did that evil thing because I want to bring good out of it. No, you can't do it. That's always wrong, um, to do evil that good may come. So, and that would be a, you know, an evil act with a good intention. That's how people would try to justify it. And they try to do it all the time. So do I. You know, well, I get, no, I can't do that. So, so it's just important to remember that as the church understands it, you, you can't do evil things so that good may come. All right. All of, all of the act has to be good. Now, when we move to determining, um, so hold on to your questions because Bill, hold on to your question because um, I want to get into mortal and venial here. Okay. So a mortal sin The first, thing, the first thing to remember is what is the punishment for an unrepentant uh, mortal sin? If somebody is unrepentant for their mortal sin, that's the person that's going to hell. That's what the church teaches. A person who dies in the state of mortal sin is, and is unrepentant for it, they're not sorry, goes to hell because the church describes mortal sin as a complete rejection of God, all right? Through the act of that sin, it's so grave that it's a complete rejection of God's love. The grace that inhabited the soul now vacates the soul. It's a complete break in the relationship with God. A venial sin weakens, as the church says, it weakens charity, but it doesn't break charity completely. Think of it in, in relationship to a relationship with another human being. You know, Bill, if I do something, if I'm really mean to you, um, 
I'm going to, and, and then I recognize that I'm going to have to come to you directly and say, I'm sorry. You know, I offended you. I did something. It takes an extraordinary act. But two friends, you know, if, if you're short with your friend or a little impatient with your friend or husband here and there, you know, you might just say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and it's gone. Or you might even not have to say that. Your husband might even just be like, you know, I get it. It's fine. Don't worry about it, right? So in our human relationships, we know that there are certain offenses which don't really require much to heal because nothing's really broken. And then there's the I had to sleep on the couch for a week things. <laughs> and, and those take an extraordinary act, okay? This is, a, this is a way to think of mortal sin and venial sin, all right? Um, so mortal sin is a break of charity, love, right? And, uh, and venial sin is a weakening. All right. So with that, with that uh, image I just gave you about like a human relationship, which category of sins must always be confessed? Mortal sin. Because it takes an extraordinary act to heal that which was broken. Venial sin. Do venial sins have to be confessed to a priest? Nope. Never. They never have to be. The church says you can, and even recommends that you would, on a you know, fairly regular basis. So let's say a person uh, um, commits, you know, just has venial sins to confess, and they're going to confession every week. You're going to get a lecture. Because Father's going to say, all right, what's going on? Why are you confessing this stuff? I want to know, know where you think your guilt is at. That's why. How guilty do you, why do you feel so guilty for, do you think it, number one, intellectually, do you think it's a mortal sin? And if the person does think it's a mortal sin, I'll work with them and help them to understand what a mortal sin should be. If they remain convinced that it's a mortal sin, then I, I let it go. Then I'll, what I'll say is I'll say, well, look, you know, I think that you really need to keep forming your conscience, but, I'll, but I'm going to forgive you. Of course, I'm going to forgive your sin. Because if they, if they think, if they're certain it's a mortal sin, then I have to treat it as one. Because I can't judge it. I can only communicate the conditions by which one would have been committed. A venial sin means, you know, it's almost like saying it's, it's, it's kind of like a nothing sin. St. Thomas Aquinas says that a venial sin can be forgiven with just sprinkling holy water on yourself. Venial sin can be confessed directly to God. That's what we do at the confidier at the beginning of Mass, the penitential rite. Why do we always do? Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Why does Father invite us to recall our sins? Venial sins. Right there. And actually mortal sins, but we'll get to that. But venial sins, forgiven. They're forgiven with, with a prayer. They're forgiven with an act of penance. They're forgiven directly just asking God for forgiveness. Another good reason why it's good for people... Um, you know, before they go to bed to just kind of think about their day, you know, and say, how did I do today? And, you know, and if there are venial sins to ask for forgiveness so that, you know, you wouldn't let the day go by without having those forgiven. All right. So the confessional can forgive venial sin. And if, and if a person is not committing mortal sin, 
but they, they think they're, they're mostly, because most people commit venial sin uh, rather frequently. Mortal sin doesn't, doesn't happen nearly as often, um, but, and it shouldn't because it means the deprivation of heaven and eternal damnation, right? It's a pretty big deal. Venial sin um, happens, though, a lot more frequently. So, um, so if, if a, let's say a person is stuck in habitual venial sin, they should go to confession. So technically, now, now I, I realize I'm jumping around, but, you know, whatever. I don't need to. I'm the, that's my class, so. Um, <laughs> so I just want to make sure I get to everything. All right, so if a person is, let's say that they're, they're in habitual venial sin, and it's something they really want to work on. All right, well, the way that they would work on that is, um, you know, in their direct relationship with God, in their daily prayers, and in their daily living. And also, I would recommend going to confession every eight weeks-ish, you know, six to eight weeks or something, for just people in venial sin. Um, other, other priests will say, go every week. But, the, you know, the problem with it, okay, the problem that, that I've found with people is that um, if, if they're not careful, if they keep confessing their venial sins like their mortal sins, as though they are mortal sins, they begin to take on a scrupulous conscience. And their conscience gets skewed. Their ability to judge between mortal and venial sin just it gets warped and they have a hard time. And so then they end up feeling guilty about everything. So at, at the last place I was pastor, I had I had uh, a confession schedule twice a day, every day, except for Sunday. And uh, we had like seven and a half hours of confession a week. And um, and I stopped it. The, uh, the parochial vicar and I uh, we were talking about it because we were getting so many scrupulous people, people who thought every little thing was a, was a mortal sin. And we realized that actually offering confession that frequently was having a negative effect on how people were seeing their own, their own the morality of their, of their actions, such that, you know, it was just basically getting people who were just hammering themselves all the time. So, so that was the reason that I decided to, to change that. Now, how often does the church say you have to go to confession? The church says, it's in here, it's under the one on confession. The, um, the church says that you should go, it's really interesting the way it says it. Maybe I should read it. Um, Did you find it? Yeah, I know it's once a year during the Easter season, but I just wanted to read it because it was... Um, um, so the, the church recommends, I, you know, I just, I don't always underline where all this stuff is. The church recommends that a person would confess their mortal sins at least once a year during the Easter season, okay? So how often do you have to go to confession? How many people say once a year you need to go to confession? <laughs> Kathleen, you think once a year? No? What do you think? Right. The church doesn't say you have to go once a year. 
The church says you have to go once a year if you have a mortal sin. If you don't commit a mortal sin, you don't have to go to confession. Because it can be forgiven in other means. That doesn't mean that's what the church recommends. The church does not recommend you never go to confession for your venial sins. The, the church actually recommends that you would confess your sins on a frequent basis. What does that mean? Depends on the priest. Some priests will say every day. Well, good luck. It ain't going to happen with me. All right? And I'm not going to tell you to do that because I, for all the reasons I already told you. Um, because it's important that the conscience being formed in the proper way to be able to make a good judgment about, about human action requires the proper activity with how we deal with our sinfulness. So, um, you know, it, ultimately it's going to be left up to the, the person. The person needs to make it a determination. I can recommend, you know, other priests can recommend. The church recommends on a frequent basis. But remember that the church just said, and I know it's in there, the church just said you need to confess at least once a year your mortal sins in the Easter season. Well, what about our venial sins? Well, you should do those frequently. Well, the last measure was once a year. So if the church is saying do it frequently for your venial sins, I mean, you might draw the conclusion that the church is saying every week, but I don't think that's really going hand in hand with the previous statement of these horrible sins, do it at least once a year, and then do your venial sins every week? I don't think so. I think it's probably, you know, and again, the church is not going to say for every single individual, this is how often you should do it. For instance, if you're a cloistered nun and you're going to confession, um, you know, they're probably going to have confession once a week. But it's a different thing. You know, it's a different way of life to be in a in a cloister with other women. It's just a different way of life. And so a way of life for for a teenager, a way of life for, um, you know, somebody, a pre-adolescent like Kathleen, you know, a way of life for, for an old person like... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I didn't want to point anyone out. <laughs> so, so the church, you know, allows for a certain amount of latitude. Now, if you commit a mortal sin in Advent and you're like, well, I don't need to go to confession until once in the Easter season. Okay, that's true. Um, but you can't go to confession or you can't go to communion. Can't go to communion. If you are conscious of a mortal sin and you're saying, well, I'll just go sometime in the next six months, you shouldn't go to communion. Um, so so then can you ever receive Holy Communion being conscious of mortal sin? Yes, you can. Ha! Yes, you can. I know, all these trick questions. All these trick questions. It's in the Catechism. You have to read it. I got them up here. It's online. Okay. If you make a perfect act of contrition, um, yeah, it's always in my pocket. Where is it? No, that's the bad one. Oh, it's right here. All right. So if you make a perfect act of contrition, which means you are sorry for your sins because of love, not fear. 
If you are sorry for your sins, if you did not have the opportunity to go to confession, all right, but you have the firm purpose of amendment to go as soon as you can, remember not every parish has a priest, or sometimes they have to share one, right? And there are other, other countries where a priest comes around. I mean, if you're in China, we had a, we had a missionary in China who was uh, teaching English uh, when she was there for a few years. She's back now, but... Um, they, they would only have a, a priest come around to some of the, the villages, you know, once every number of months. And, and so if you don't have the ability to get to confession, okay, if you, if you make a perfect act of contrition, which doesn't mean I did it right, it means you're sorry for your sins, you repent from your sins because of your love for God. Because of your love for God, not because of your fear of hell because of your love for God, your sins are forgiven before you even go to confession. So you can go to communion, but you need to go to confession as soon as possible. Okay, so for us, that'd be like Tuesday morning or Friday night. All right, if you work during the day on Tuesday, but you can get there on, on Friday night, then Friday night's the soonest you can go. Okay, but the, the perfect act of, you have to be sorry for your sins because you love God, not because you're afraid of damnation. That's an imperfect act of contrition. It's not completely for the right reasons, okay? And you have to determine that. The church, I'm not going to tell you whether that's, I don't know, I can't judge you. You have to judge. Okay, so you can actually go to confession, or you can go to communion having committed a mortal sin, and if there is not confession available, or it was a significant Saturday night, um, you know, and then you woke up, oh, geez, you know, one of those mornings. Um, not that I know. Um, <laughs> you know, and you repent out of the, for the love of God, you can go to communion. Um, if, as long as, now, if you, what happens if you just don't do it? Well, then you're lying, you know. You're just lying, you're lying to God, you know. And it's all on you. It's all on you. So you have to do it for the right reasons. Um, a mortal sin, to be a mortal sin, it, it, it takes, there are three requirements. Grave matter, uh, free, uh, full knowledge, yeah, I'll do knowledge first. And then uh, full freedom, full freedom. You have to be free. Remember all those things I was talking about that lessen something from being a mortal sin? They're right here. Because if it's not grave matter, it's a venial sin right off the bat. Grave matter is roughly specified by the Ten Commandments. Okay? That's what the Catechism says. But for, for it, so even if it's grave matter, if you don't have full knowledge, if you don't truly know it's wrong, um, or you didn't, I didn't know that was a mortal sin. I didn't know the church was against that. Or, you know, you went to four different priests and they all told you something different. And you're like, I don't know, I'm confused. You don't have full knowledge. So you, maybe you sought out the truth, but the knucklehead you asked wasn't me. So, <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. But... You know, if you go to a surgeon, do you want the guy who got the A or the guy who got the C? All right, so 
I got the A. Um, anyway, that sounds totally prideful. But here's the problem is that people come to me all the time and they say, I went to this other priest and he told me that wasn't wrong. Um, or he told me that was wrong. He said that's always a mortal sin. To which I say, no, because of these criteria. He didn't tell you the truth. or he didn't, Now, maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he's not a bad priest. He might be. But maybe he's not. I don't know. Maybe he's just kind of a dumb priest. I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for the guy. But what I do know is what the church teaches, um, and at least on this. And so you have to have full knowledge. And, and that can be, you can be confused, and then you wouldn't have full knowledge. You also have to be free. You know, you have to have, now, we're, we always have limited freedom. So our freedom is always contingent. It's always, uh, we always owe our freedom to something else, namely someone else, God. We're not completely free to do everything we want physically or, you know, mentally, or we're not completely free. And then when you factor in things like, um, you know, psychology, which, which I'm a huge uh, student of, you know, and you look at um, the way a person grew up. You know, and the, the stuff that they experienced growing up. And, and if, people, if people experienced abuse, if they, if they experienced a, a really um, difficult family life growing up, this affects your psychology. It affects your freedom. It just does. So our freedom is never fully, it's never, it's never perfect. It's never, in, you know, it's, it's never like God's or infinite. But it can get to the point where we're free enough to not do the thing we ought not to do. So if we have the freedom to not do the thing that we're not supposed to do, we have enough freedom to be guilty of having done it. Does that make sense? Um, and, and so we, you know, we need to be... That this is where the judgment of conscience comes in. I cannot tell... If you come to me and say, Father, I did this. What did you know? I knew this. How free were you? Well, and you tell me the story. I mean, this would be a long confession, but you told me the whole story. Then you said, Father, do you think it's a mortal sin? I would say, I don't know, because it's not my judgment of conscience to make. It's yours. You have to make it. I can't make it for you. So if you go to confession and a priest says, that's a mortal sin, he can't say that. If a priest from the pulpit says, that's always a mortal sin, he technically can't say that because he doesn't know any of these criteria. He can say, and this is often where the mistake is made, he can say it's always wrong, it's always grave matter. So contraception, the church says, is intrinsically evil. It's always wrong. Church says that. Humana vitae, right? Um, everyone's favorite encyclical. So, and everyone's favorite teaching, by the way. So the church says that it's, it's always wrong. It's intrinsically evil. Are you always guilty of a mortal sin? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay? There's, there's plenty of other sins that the church says, look, it, it was wrong to do it, but your guilt is, is always contingent upon your knowledge and your freedom. Okay? Um, and some people in... Um, there are some people in marriages, and the church has even said this, uh, the handbook for confessors. Um, the church, this is from John Paul II, the church has even stated conditions by which a woman would consent or could consent 
to the use of certain contraception um, and still consent to the marital act and herself not be guilty of sin. Um, so the church admits that there are certain conditions, but you know I'm not going to get into the particularities. We'll do that when we do like a beginning of life bioethics course. We'll, we can talk about all that in more depth. And, and also, so we have, you know, a declaration of, you know, so everyone knows who, what we're going to talk about. So parents are prepared. Um, you know, but, but the point is that, uh, you know, so a priest can say that's grave matter because the church has said certain things are grave matter. The, a priest can say that's intrinsically evil because the church has said certain things are intrinsically evil. But he cannot impute to everyone that's a mortal sin. Because he can't know this. And furthermore, it's not his judgment of conscience to make. Does that make sense? Now, priests will do it because, I don't know, um, they're trying to scare people into the confessional or, or they just, they, you know, I mean, I think they're trying to do it out of a, a concern for people, but, um, but it's not right. It's bad theology. It's bad pastoral activity. Um, Okay, so let's see. Let's go to now. When you when you go to both confession and conscience, um, both the concept of conscience and confession come from Scripture. Um, when you look at conscience, one thing I want you to to remember about conscience is the etymology of the word, where is it? I'm not even reading any of this. I don't even know why I'm finding it. There it is. Okay, conscience. Conscience. Or, yep, con-ciencia. What is ciencia? Anyone know? Ciencia? It's Latin. Science with knowledge. So conscience is a judgment based on knowledge, based on the intellect, not the emotions. Not, I have this feeling that something is right. All right? It's, we do have that. We do have something like that. But when we're talking about a judgment of conscience, we're talking about a function of the intellect, of the intellect. It has to do with knowing, okay? So, you know, this begins um, with St. Paul, and I'll just, and, you know, again, you get, you get a seedling of, of something in the scriptures, and then because Christ gave his authority to Peter and the apostles and their successors, this seed of an idea gets developed. All right. So Romans uh, chapter two, verse 12 through 16 talks about this interior law. Paul talks about this interior law. All who sin outside the law will also perish without reference to it. And all who sin under the law will be judged in accordance with it. For it is not those who hear the law who are just in the sight of God. Rather, those who observe the law will be justified. Now, remember, 
He's, he's, he's referring to both Jews and non-Jews. The Jews know the law. The, the non-Jews don't know that law. So they can't be judged. Well, how are they going to be judged if they don't know the Mosaic law? For when the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who do not have the law by nature, observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. So they have this interior law at work within them. They don't have the, the, the received law, as the Jews do. They have an interior law. So he continues. They show that the demands of the law are written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even defend them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge people's hidden works through Christ Jesus. So, you know, the question at work is, well, okay, the Jews have the Mosaic law. So they, they understand the law. They've received the law. They know what they should and should not do. But what about the Gentiles? They don't have that. So how are they, how do they know what's right and wrong? How, they, how do they know to, to follow what's good? There's no catechisms when the letter to the Romans are written. There's no Bible. There's no Bible, right? There's parchments being sent around the Mediterranean. This doesn't even get conceived in its current form until St. Athanasius in the 300s. So there's no Bible. It's not put together. It's not even assembled until much later. Okay? And it's the authority of the church that did all of that, by the way. Um, but what he's saying is, see, the people can't just advert to. There's certain things, though, that they know that are wrong. These inclinations. So the conscience... Um, you know, speaks to, to every individual. It's the voice of God in the heart of, of every individual. The, the church uh, refers to the conscience as the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Who's the vicar of Christ? The Pope. But if you have the voice of conscience, the voice of God directing you, you know, it's not that you don't need the Pope, but you're going to be able to choose right action because of that judgment of conscience. So what, what you need to do to make a what, what a, what the conscience does is it judges the rightness of a moral action that you've already done or that you're going to do. It judges whether it's good or evil, okay? And how does it make its judgment? It makes its judgment based on knowledge, okay? Um, so the use of prudence, which is the intellectual virtue, the virtue of prudence is the knowledge of the good and the right means of achieving the good. Okay, so you use the more that you develop prudence within yourself, the better and the more accurate of a moral judgment you're going to make or a, a conscientious judgment. Um, it uses divine revelation. What is divine revelation? There are two pillars of divine revelation. There are scripture, and these are equal, and tradition. The tradition of the apostles and the, the teaching of the church, the catechism. So these are equal basis. According to Catholics, scripture and tradition, the authority of the church, are equal. So again, making a judgment. Okay, I don't know. I've always wondered if this is right or wrong. Well using prudence, knowledge of the good, the more that you know what the good is, the more you seek the good, the more that you will, you will sort of gain this habit of knowing the good, all right? 
And, it, and there are all kinds of people who don't have this. Why does a person keep doing the wrong thing? Because they don't have this. Or they don't have courage. But that's another point. Um, so then you take in divine revelation. Well, I've always wondered if that's right or wrong. Go to the book, you know. Go to the catechism. Go to the, go to the scriptures. There's data. There's information that's been handed on. Counsel. If you don't know, find somebody you think is morally upright and ask them. It doesn't have to be me. It might be, might be Lewis. If you think Lewis is, can help you with something, you should ask Lewis. I mean, you know, there's, you're a good guy. I think you might have good advice, you know. But, but what I do is I ask a number of people in my life. I, I, have, I have close friendships, and when I'm looking at a, at a moral judgment, I bounce it off people who I think are wise, you know, who I think have, who have a good grasp of things, who can give me good counsel. So I may know the good, but I may, where I usually lack is the right means of achieving it. So I'll, I'll often spend a lot more time trying to get, you know, data from them, assistance from them. What else? Prayer. It's through prayer that Christ speaks to us. God speaks to us when we pray. The closer we are to God, the better we're going to, obviously, we're going to do better. You know, we're going to choose more, better moral actions. We're not going to want to do evil if we're close to God, right? And we're also, by knowing God, who is good and who is truth, right, we're going to be able to, to make a judgment of what's good and what's evil a whole lot better, okay? Now, there's also something called, I, I don't want to go into this, but there's something called natural law. Okay, and this is uh, also what Paul's talking about, um, and Saint Thomas, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas talks about this: that there are certain things, written inclinations, written on the heart of man, such as do good and avoid evil. Like everybody just knows you should do good and avoid evil. Well, why do some people e do evil? Because Saint Thomas says that they they perceive it as a good, an apparent good. Nobody would sin if they didn't think it would bring some sort of enjoyment or pleasure or benefit. So they perceive it as a good in the moment, even though it's not a true good, but they pursue it as a good, okay? Um, so the natural law, there are certain inclinations in the heart of man, like self-preservation, preserving your life, like things like marriage and propagation of, of procreation of children. Um, uh, forming societies. There's five of them. It's question 94. I don't remember. Question 94, Article 2, and the Prima Secunda. Those of you listening at home, that may not be accurate, but it's pretty close. I know it's in the Prima Secunda. You'll find it. Look it up. Okay. Um, so everyone is bound to form their conscience. Um, it's, it's not a righteous position to go through life being ignorant about morality, about what the good is. To just go through life and saying, I don't want to know. I mean, in a sense, ignorance is bliss because you're not as guilty. But the problem is that you're guilty for being ignorant. You're guilty for not finding and seeking the truth, which is one of those another one of those natural inclinations in the heart of man. 
So when you're making a judgment of conscience, the goal, judgment of conscience, the goal is a correct and certain conscience. So the goal is about a moral act is to arrive at a point where you're right and you're certain that you're right. However, you can also have an incorrect and certain conscience. So you can be certain that your judgment is correct, but it's not correct, but you're wrong. Okay, so, but you think you're right, but it's, it's actually wrong. The problem is you don't know you're wrong. So if you arrive at a certain conscience, you must always obey it, even if you're wrong, because you can't know you're wrong. Because if you knew you're wrong, you couldn't be certain. Does that make sense? So you try to arrive to the best of your abilities at a certain and correct conscience. And that's why you use all of these other mechanisms to help you and to assist you. All right. But let's say you get it wrong, but you're certain. You still have to follow it. A person always has to follow their certain conscience. If they disobey their certain conscience, they sin. Now you can also be vincibly or invincibly incorrect. Meaning, you're either responsible or not responsible for making an incorrect judgment of conscience. If you're a seventh grader and you've been told by your parents your entire life that it's not a mortal sin to go to Mass on Sunday, and you're trying to make a, a judgment as a seventh grader about the moral rightness or wrongness of that action, you're, you're not probably responsible for the lack of formation of your conscience until you go to class with Father John and he teaches you that it's wrong. And now you have somebody who, about church stuff, is a greater authority than your parents. So now you're, now you're no longer certain. Now you are doubtful. And a doubtful conscience does not need to be obeyed because you're not certain. So when in doubt, you're, you're constantly trying to work towards certainty, okay? Um, but, but you may be certain about something for a whole lot of your life, and so therefore you should be doing it. But then all of a sudden you get hit with more data, or you find more data, and then now you move down to doubtful. Well, now you probably should go to church on Sunday, <laughs> every Sunday, until now you can keep trying to work back up to certain, but there's a good chance that certainty now changes and your certainty now becomes, yeah, I should go to Mass on Sunday, as opposed to I don't have to, which was your certain conscience before. Okay? A doubtful conscience does not need to be obeyed. I'm not sure if it's a mortal sin to go to Mass on Sunday. Well, okay. Or to not go to Mass on Sunday. Um, I'm not sure. 
Well, then what you need to pick is the surer of the two alternatives based upon the data you have and the person telling you. Father John with a licentiate in moral theology or your mother who doesn't go to Mass every Sunday. You know, I mean, I don't know if a seventh grader can make that judgment, but somebody who's 50 can. You probably shouldn't be listening to your mother anymore anyway. Um, so, so, well, yeah, because obedience is no longer owed to a parent after liberation, right? Or emancipation. 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 All right, so... Uh, Incorrect, invincible, invincible, correct, incorrect. So, so when you're looking at a moral act, then, the goal is you want to get to a certain conscience. The problem, the problem that people often have, though, is they think they're right, but they haven't done this work. All right? Namely, I mean, this wouldn't be work. This would just be inclination. But they haven't prayed about it. They don't want to ask anybody. And by the way, there's, there's it's a funny thing. Um, People often will just keep going to priests until they get the answer they want. Did you know we know that about you? Um, you just keep shopping around, shopping around until till one priest, well, Father said it was okay. Yeah, well, the other nine didn't, you know? And this guy's, you know, senile in a retirement home. Um, <laughs> You know, or you, you, go to, you go to somebody who you know is like really liberal on this, that issue and maybe even dissents from the church, and then they say it's okay. Well, then you're lying to yourself. You're just lying. You're, you're guilty. You're on the hook. You cannot blame that priest. It's your problem because you're just shopping around. So the goal of counsel is coming to the truth, okay? You, you look at divine revelation, scripture, and tradition. It's all there. It's all there. You know, there, there, now there's a number of things. You look going to bioethics where the church has not definitively stated certain things, all right? But, and, and so in that situation, you're back over here. You're left with your conscience to, to, to try to input as much of this as you can, but you know, you're gonna try to get it to a certain conscience with the data you have. With, this, with, with a lot of the stuff like the Ten Commandments, I mean, it's all very clear. There's no doubts about that stuff. The doubt is whether you wanna follow it or not. The doubt is whether you want to apply it to your situation or not, or it can be applied to your situation or not. But it's not a righteous position to, to stay uh, in a certain conscience when you haven't done any work to find out if you're wrong. That's not a righteous position, and you will be judged for not finding that out. This is where ignorance is not so much bliss. You know, when you're, <clears throat> when you're an adolescent, and you know, you're still learning about the moral law and just trying to do the moral law or, or hold to it, that's one thing. You know? But as an adult, uh, to, be a, you know, to, to, to truly be a person who uses their uh, being created in the image and likeness of God, really uses their, their freedom, their intellect and will in a way that upholds their true dignity, means you gotta go to all this stuff and you gotta find it out. And does it make it harder? Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to find out things you didn't want to know? Yeah. But you probably knew them anyway. There's probably, there, if, if you've got some of these things in your life, um, there's probably something, and we usually say it's the conscience, there's something that's, that's sort of bugging you. It keeps bugging you. I, should, I need to clear that up. 
I don't want to. It's too hard. Well, but you should do it. But I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> I get that. Of course. We don't want to always do what we know is best because it's hard. But the question is not whether it's hard. The question is whether it's the right thing to do. The question is it's whether it's what God wants us to do. Um, 